Welcome to another Sitting Dockside. Got a cool return guest. Still just doing some really neat stuff. Stephen Barden, Texas Pro Lake Management. And uh, you know what? I learned a lot on this podcast. He talks about cormorants to major league fishing to how wrote wrote known application. Stephen is uh Stephen's quite a bit younger than me. Not quite a bit. I mean, he's you know he's pushing them high thirties, but uh, he's done a lot. He's doing a lot. Uh, he's really crushing it. And uh, love always talking to Stephen because he's just great fisheries biologist. Has his hand in a lot of stuff. It's really cool in terms of. Uh, bringing young people in the industry stewardship yes uh, right gui- guidance for young kids that you know may need guidance he's just he's got just a outreach program that is exceptional and and matt and i like steven's heart a whole lot because uh, we all have a heart for education and uh it's the reason we do the podcast and playing off of that pwnra.org is the parent nonprofit of this podcast this podcast can be downloaded from any of your podcast services you can also check out the Facebook page, which is questions, content, I'm sorry, Lake and Pond Management, questions, content, and community. So check that Facebook page out and uh, really hope y'all enjoy this episode. We always love having Stephen on and he really expounds on a lot of topics that sometimes we probably don't delve far enough into. And uh, he does that today. 70 something podcasts. You never messed up the name of the Facebook and you did today. The only reason I did today is because you were 20 minutes late to sit down with us. And now I'm hungry. <laughs> it's always going to be your fault if I mess something up. Uh, yeah. Steven's great. Uh, we're going to learn a lot today for the listener who is listening to this podcast on the way to work. You may have to sit in the parking lot a little bit and, uh, until the podcast is over. <laughs> outside work and be a little bit late to work because there is a lot of a lot of content he hits a lot of cool things and how he is pushing a lot of newer science into reservoir management using fishermen to do it so stay tuned yeah. Well, we're your host, Matt Rail, and my Tennessee buddy, Troy Goldsby. Together, we have been working with lakes and ponds for over 40 years. And during that time, we have picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake owners and experts from all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles from your kids or grandkids on your lake. Or learn how to grow some memories on your pond, then come sit with us on Sitting Dockside. Uh, welcome to Sitting Dockside with ex- a uh, return guest, right? You've yeah, return here. guest. I think, yeah, I think we're going to break a record here. I, I am so happy you guys have me back for season two so I can continue my streak. That's right. Yeah. We're going to have you back multiple times during season two. I mean, you're you're just, you know, you're young, you're enthusiastic, you're out there crushing it. That's what we got to have in the industry, yeah. buddy. Do me a favor. Introduce time. yourself. Steven, for the one person out there that's never never heard the other three podcasts you were on. Okay. So, uh, well, Matt and Troy, I'm Steven Barden, fisheries biologist in the state of Texas. Um, met, met Matt when I was 18 years old and uh, – <laughs> was just a young guy coming into the industry. Matt taught me a lot about bubbles and aeration. 
Um, at that time, I was working for a guy named Harold Arms at his fish farm. I was also getting my bachelor's in fishery science at Tarleton State University. Went left there and got a master's at Texas A&M. At the same time, starting my master's, I decided to start a business as well. So I was kind of the crazy guy that thought I could do everything at once. And uh, luckily, it turned out to be successful. So I've been running my own business, uh, private lake management here in Central Texas uh, since 2011. I've also worked as an adjunct professor for Charlton State, teaching fisheries management and conservation and ichthyology. I've uh, been the camp coordinator for Texas Brigade, which is a really, uh, for, for their Bass Brigade camp, which is a really cool youth leadership camp for students 13 to 17 years old. Um, we do it every summer. And then more recently, myself and Gary Klein partnered with Major League Fishing, and we started the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management Division. So I've kind of branched out to where I have uh, Texas Pro Lake Management as my private lake management company. And then I have a second company where we're focused on reservoir management and really using anglers to create good stewardship and kind of progress uh, what we're doing across the nation as anglers. Nicely said. I love it. I actually saw the Bass Brigade post that you had on Facebook today. That's great. Looks like that's uh, coming along good right now. Yeah, Bass Brigade is, is kind of a, it's one of those heart projects, right? It, it refuels your batteries every summer. It's a commitment that, you know, in person, it's five days. Um, kind of throughout the year, we have several meetings. I've stepped back and, and more have a leadership role um, in, in letting some of the younger guys kind of come in and, and take control of the day-to-day -day work. Um, I do a lot of fundraising for that camp still. But what we do, Troy, is we, we bring kids in. We, we focus on 13 to 17-year-old high school students. We bring them in for the week, and we do a lot of, of fisheries management work, right? We teach them the basic science of fisheries management. We have professional anglers that come in and teach them the angling side. We have fly fishermen that come teach them the fly fishing side. Uh, but the whole thing is a big ruse to get them there, um, give them a subject matter to distract them, and then try to teach a little bit of leadership, team building, um, you know, public speaking, they do a town hall meetings, they create PowerPoints and they do PowerPoint presentation. Uh, so we, we kind of trick them into learning a cool subject matter for the week, immersing themselves in it, uh, and then give them some of those life skills that maybe they'll take on. And, and really the goal is not to create fisheries biologists, although we, we've done that. Uh, the goal is to just create the next generation of conservation leaders that are going to go in and do the things they do in their careers, but then have that passion for conservation on the back end to really, uh, you know, spur kind of the funding efforts and, and kind of the legislation we're going to need in the future. Wow. That's yeah, great. that's, uh, we you know when I was 17 years old, I was a junior in high school and there was a program in Mobile at uh, Dolphin Island called the Discovery Hall Program. And there's no better way for kids to learn than to just do hands-on stuff. And that program was designed around marine biology because at the time, that's what I thought I was going to do. But that was a month-long program for, for kids from all over the country. There's probably 50 or 60 of us, and they did it every year. You go down for the month, and you learn just everything that you didn't learn in school about marine biology, dune systems, you know, marine life. It was just the coolest experience. I'm, I'm glad you're doing that for kids, man. It's a... Uh, it's really a good way not only to bring them into the industry, but also also guide them in the way they should go. Awesome stuff, buddy. I guess with the bass brigades, would you? I've been kind of watching you for a long time, Stephen, on the whole scenario. It's 
one, it's created some really cool leaders, and that's that's a feather in your cap. But if somebody out there is listening to this podcast, what's the best way to find more information about Bass Brigade? Yeah. Yeah, so I know that wasn't the topic we had for tonight, but I, I appreciate you guys giving me the uh, kind of ability to talk about that camp. And Bass Brigade is just one of actually eight camps that are put on in what we call the Texas Brigade System. So that's a nonprofit organization started 30 years ago. And you just go to texasbrigade.org to learn all the information about the camps because we have other wildlife species and actually ranch management as well. Uh, so we have different subject matters. So you know, you don't just have to be a fish head like us guys. You could be you could be interested in marine, like Troy mentioned. We have a coastal brigade, uh, but then we also have waterfowl. We have buckskin. We have quail. So we've got a lot of options uh, to intrigue kind of any mind that wants to get in the outdoors. Yeah, really cool. The uh, that is really cool. I I've watched that for a long time, and that thing has grown. And what you guys do is, I mean, from working on fish and then around fish and understanding conservation while learning how to fish is is pretty cool all in itself. But uh, you were telling me, you were telling me uh, you uh, threw some rope down in a lake today. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So before before we started recording, we were chatting a little bit, and I did. I got to do a rope known job. Um, we do five to 10 a year, just depending on, you know, where different clients are at in their management strategies. This is a, a new fishery to us. We, uh, you know, the owners had the property for 30 plus years, uh, contacted us just through kind of word of mouth and asked if I would come look at the fisheries. It's, it's a small pond, one acre, uh, average depth is five foot, but max depth is about eight and a half. And, uh-huh. He had stocked it for crappie. It was going to be his crappie pond. Um, so we we started. I actually put the electrofishing boat in first, and uh, kind of electrofish real quick, just a proof of concept. Before ever putting the boat in the water, whenever I did my initial consult, I told them, you know, you're you're not catching the quality crappie because it's been mismanaged. And really, if you want to use this fishery correctly, we need to start over. Uh, but to proof of concept, we put the electro fishing boat in, ran the electro fisher for eight minutes, and all we were catching were six inch crappie. And it, it was kind of one of those things that his range manager was there and said, absolutely, we feel comfortable with what we're doing. Um, we didn't expect a lot of species diversity, but whenever the rope node hit the water, uh, it, it doesn't take long. We we do the grid method where we drop the droppers to the very bottom. We started in that eight foot depth. I could see on my down scan that there were some larger fish in the lake. Uh, so I told him right away, hey, there, there is going to be some other fish that come up. Uh, so we, we ran our grid on the bottom. We then moved it to mid-level and ran it at four foot. And then we went surface. And within 15 minutes, we saw not only did we have black crappie that were extremely stunted, <laughs> Uh, we had a few golden shiners. We had uh, uh, quite a few hybrid bluegill, and then we had channel cat and mud catfish. All of this one acre pond that, you know, his chief complaint was, I can't catch fish. And, you know, so, well, number one, if you're crappie fishing all the time and, and you only have six inch fish, uh, because that <clears throat> that carry capacity has been reached with no management, no harvest, um, that, that's kind of what we expected. But the, cat, the channel catfish were surprised. 
And then we snuck in kind of that one management principle that I try to teach everybody. Um, there's always going to be that one fish, that one fish that figures it out, learns how to outcompete, learns the environment. And we caught one crappie that weighed 3.3 pounds. So this yeah, one monster uh, crappie was there. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. So, so, so I shared that. And for everybody who follows the Facebook page, I'm sure that that three-pound crappie picture will be matched with a bunch of six-inch crappie at some point with a post that says something along the lines of, like, this is what you think you, you're you going to have. This is what you'll have in actuality if you don't harvest. Uh, because, you know, crappie ponds are one of the most difficult ponds to to kind of put together and then manage long-term. Um, so I got to do that rote no job. We actually, when I do a rote no job, I don't just focus on the fishery we're managing, I go the entire watershed. So, you know, we did that with the boat. We, we electrofished, we did put the rope on out and we kind of washed the equipment off, put on the waders and we start going little pothole pond to pothole pond and wrote on every single thing in the watershed. Because what we're trying to do is create an effective plan that'll last forever. And so We'll go back in another month or so and, and do our restocking. We're not going to go back with crappie. Um, he's not committed to kind of that intense management and the habitat work that's required to kind of make that successful. So we're going to go trophy bluegill in that pond. Um, and then the other ponds, little pothole ponds in the watershed, we're going to stock with bluegill and red ear and then use those um, as kind of nursery ponds for the rest of the property where we'll, we'll harvest fish out of those and, and use them for his trophy bass lake. That's, that's in another watershed. This is kind of timely, actually. So just from two other opinions here. So we get questions about uh, fish elimination on the Facebook page quite often. I saw two pop up recently. Well, one in particular, and it was about using hydrated lime to renovate a fish pond. I have my thoughts on that. Uh, Stephen, what are your thoughts? Rote note is so effective that it's hard for me to look at anything else i mean it is it's a the doses are calculated so easily the results are so quick it dissipates out of the environment so quickly um, it's hard for me to even explore other options and especially maybe options that are off label that right you know yeah. aren't that aren't supposed to be used in that way and we have to also understand um whenever we're talking about renovating a pond this is a lethal dose of chemical that we're putting out and rotenone has been found to be a humane way to renovate a pond and so we understand that whenever we apply that rotenone at the correct doses how that's working within the fish's body how it's shutting off the oxygen absorption through the gills and it's a safe humane way that's epa regulated so i stick to i stick to the label and i stick to the products i know yeah, so this is the thing that people need to understand. <clears throat> uh, hydrated lime is not labeled for fisheries renovation. It's not. It's not what its use is. So anytime you're doing that, you're you're doing something off label and really technically illegal. Um, Rote known is an extremely safe product that is a very targeted. It, it targets specific species that are gilled species. So rote known is only going to kill creatures that uh, pull their oxygen through gills from a water column. Um, there's, uh, there are people that have used hydrated lime in the past. There's people that uh, have used uh, chlorine to do this. And 
those products are not only going to kill fish, but they will also kill other organisms. So when we're looking at fish renovations, we want to make sure we're targeting fish specifically, not every other organism in the water body, and use the products that are actually labeled uh, and utilized. And just so we've talked about this before, people need to understand, rotenone is a naturally occurring substance that comes from a root of trees in South America and Africa. Uh, it's used uh, by indigenous peoples of, of different areas. Uh, in small creeks, they'll take root wads of, of that tree and they'll bang it in a creek, dam up a little section, bang it, and it kills the fish that are sitting there for them to have something to eat. In America, uh, it's a little different. It's mixed typically with acetone uh, to help spread the product, but um, it is, it's a naturally occurring substance. Uh, it's very effective, very humane, like Stephen was saying, and, and it's just really and truly people want to compare costs all of that. At the end of the day, it's the most effective, probably the most cost efficient when you look at what it's actually doing uh, and just the best method. Right. The, to kind of catch up, everybody, you know, rope known, we, we went right into that formulation. Basically, it's a fish eradicant, meaning that it's a, it's a, it's a product that the only product that used in our industry that can, that can kill fish in a way uh, in a pond or lake. And the next question, if you're kind of just catching on is why would you kill the lake and pond and start over? And then, you know, Stephen did a great job of, uh, explaining, you know, particularly on this scenario, it wasn't managed, had some species that in there that were very undesirable for the goals. And so sometimes it's better to start the whole thing over and the cost of more cost effective to be able to do that. You know, we talked about that on some other podcasts and, but the next question I have for you, Stephen, is, is, uh, you're going to do some trophy bluegill. Well, one, you hit on it, but I want you to explain on a little bit more. You said he had a crappie in a small pond and he didn't want to take the management to make it a crappie pond. Why don't you explain what it would take? Cause it's always been notorious of saying, Hey, don't ever stop crappie in a small pond period is that your take on crappie and then if it's not what would it take for this gentleman to have a crappie pond that is smaller in surface acreage yeah, i think that um i am not opposed to crappie in small ponds with a caveat i use a lot of hybrid crappie and the reason that we don't typically stop stock crappie in small ponds is because we're using black crappie. They're pure species. They have a high reproductive potential. And then they have a slow growth mechanism and they prefer very soft forage. So we have to have an abundant soft forage. We have to have a lot of time to grow the crappie to the size we want, but then they're going to mature quickly at six inches. They're going to start reproducing. And then all of a sudden, yeah, mature crappie reproducing continuously, growing slow, and it, it, it bottlenecks very quickly. So if we're going to do crappie in a, in a small pond, I uh, use a hybrid. And hybrids, uh, I think kind of the jury is still out of what the reproduction actually looks like in a hybrid crappie pond, because there is some reproduction that occurs. But a hybrid uh, crappie is simply just a cross between a black and a white uh, crappie. Whenever you cross those, you get limited reproduction or uh, several non-reproductive years followed by one fairly reproductive year. And so with a limited reproduction, I can more closely control my total population, especially at stocking 
uh, and then monitor it long term for any corrective measures I need. So then once I decide I'm going to stock a small public crappie, the next two real issues I have is once again, slow growth and the, and the need for very soft forage in it to be abundant. So you're gonna have to stock those smaller ponds at a high rate using fathead minnows, golden shiner minnows, something that's soft that they can consume. But you have to then keep all predators out of that pond that also consume those similar food items. So in the presence of a large mouth bass, Fathead minnows aren't going to aren't going to last. They're just going to be consumed too quickly. So for most people, it's not practical because uh, number one, if I can get hybrid crappie, you know that that at least starts me with a population that maybe isn't as reproductive. Uh, but but can I keep largemouth bass out of that fishery long term? And that's why I focus on an entire watershed. I want to eliminate everything in the watershed so that I can try to keep that population as pure as I can long term. For me, it it's kind of um, kind of a cool challenge, right? Like I have my property, a quarter acre pond that, I mean, I have a fairly unlimited budget for minnows. I can buy as many golden shiners and fathead minnows as I really want for a quarter acre pond. You're not budget limited, like uh, 20 pounds would be a lot for that size of a fishery. So I can buy that annually and put in to that quarter acre pond. And so I can constantly add forage uh, and if I put hybrid crappie in there, which I have, I've done this on my, my personal pond, um, I know that I can constantly add the forage and I just have to wait them out to, to reach the growth that I actually want to harvest. Um, the other big issue with crappie is they're structure-oriented predators. And I don't know that we ever have that really in literature, but you guys have seen this. You know, if you've worked in a fish hatchery, you've seen the crappie will be all the crappie in a, in a tank will be by the standpipe. There won't be any crappie throughout the entire tank. They'll all be together around the standpipe. And you can drop fathead minnows in one end of a clear tank, and they will not swim over to get them. They will stay by the standpipe. They'll stay by some sort of structure. Well, they do the same thing in your pond. So you have to have an abundance of forage, and then you have to have the habitat to hold those fish. And that forage has to get near enough to that habitat for those crappie to actually consume the forage. It's just a slow growth mechanism. Um, so whenever I design a crappie pond, I uh, use hybrid crappie. I put uh, kind of an abundance of fathead and golden shiner minnows. If I'm in the southern United States and allowed, I'm going to use redfin shad as well. Um, and then I'm going to focus on habitat. In the habitat, um, we're going to build a lot of vertical structure that's got a lot of height to it. And we're going to try to replicate that in three to five locations so that Whenever I finally do get those crappie to a catchable size as an angler, I can then go effectively catch them. I can know where they're at because the final part of crappie management is the harvest side. The harvest side is so difficult because how the crappie act around habitat. And if you can catch a few, then you can catch a lot. But you may spend three to five days fishing and not catch crappie in a, in a pond unless you have good electronics or habitat. Right. Yeah, a little bit luckier up here. We we get them feed trained. We put them in. Well, and just for the just for the listener, uh, Stephen multiple times said tank. He's not talking about polymer yeah. tanks. He's talking about <laughs> ponds. These people in Texas have completely different terminology for reservoirs. Right. They call them tanks. So, <laughs> hey Troy, we call them ponds, tanks, lakes, reservoirs, 
impoundments. We call them a little bit of everything. And it's just which which part of Texas were you raised in? And then yeah. where did you move as an adult? And uh, I, I tell everybody that works for me, just call them whatever the client's calling them. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Keep yeah. Going I hear you. Them. I hear you. Yeah. But then you you killed this pond out and you're putting, you're going to put a native bluegill in there, huh? And he's wanting to. Uh, we'll, we'll, use, we'll use copper nose bluegill in red ear. Um, so we will use copper nose because we want a little bit faster growth. And, and of course, we're in the southern United States here. So uh, that species will do well. We'll feed uh, at a pretty high rate. You know, it's a one acre pond, but we'll, we'll go ahead and have two feeders. We'll have one on a dock and then we'll have one shore mounted. Um, we'll feed three, three times a day. Um, I, I'm pretty unique in the fact that my feeders will go off at the exact same time. Uh, so both feeders will feed at the exact same time to maximize the number of fish I'm feeding. And I do like a morning feeding and then an evening feeding. And then I do like a 30 minute later feeding in my evening feeding. So what I'm trying to do is feed as many fish as possible. I'm going to fill their stomachs. And then I'm going to feed again and I'm trying to spread them across the, the lake tank pond and I'm trying to feed as many as possible. And then uh, we'll monitor that population as well. So we'll see initial growth. The blue uh, male bluegill will grow larger than the females. We'll start seeing that growth whenever we have fish popping above a pound and we see that reproduction. Uh, we'll start adding a new predator and we'll use a hybrid striper. Uh, to thin those bluegill down. And then we'll also use this pond as, once again, a nursery pond. So we'll run traps and try to pull small bluegill out and move those to the Trophy Bass Lake periodically. Because, you know, bluegill, uh, they, they do have a high reproductive potential. We'll probably get six to eight reproductions a year uh, here in Texas. So if we just let those fish go without any harvest, uh, once again, we, we would end up with a stunted population. So what we have to do is we have to harvest some way. Most people would use uh, like largemouth bass, especially a stunted largemouth bass population kind of pairs well with a trophy uh, bluegill population. But this is a one acre pond and that's a very complicated system. And knowing that the owner has already once attempted crappie on the property, I would expect we're going to attempt it again somewhere else. So I want to try to keep populations as pure as possible. So I'll pick a hybrid striped bass as my kind of top end predator in the future. Huh. So it's a hybrid striped bass bluegill pond, huh? Yeah, and that's what I'll what, go what with. is the uh what is the stocking rate of those hybrid striped bass you put on top on a one acre, is it? And do you supplement them every yep. couple of years or what? Yeah, so I, I typically start small, twenty to twenty five fish for, for the first stocking. And then I'm going to look at how often are we harvesting using our traps, those juvenile bluegill, and how effective are those hybrids. The hybrids are feed trained, so you're going to have some of those that, that really get aggressive to the fish feeder and kind of crowd some of the bluegill. you got you got all these population dynamics that are going to occur. Um, we will harvest those hybrids periodically. I don't let them grow up to those 7 to 10 pound fish. We'll harvest them and try to keep them in that 5 pound range or under where they're more likely to be consuming the juvenile bluegill that are being produced. And so then we'll have to restock based on basically what we're harvesting. Yeah, we got, we had Mike Free on here about hybrid striped bass. He does a great job of telling the kind of the history of that fish, a couple of podcasts 
I don't know, 67, 68, something like in there in the podcast. You want to go back and listen to that. But, uh, Troy, you were going to say something and I cut you off. That's typical. I'm used to it. It's fine. You know, (laughs) I'm just sitting here in Tennessee. No, there was, there was a couple of topics I really wanted to try to hit. Uh, Matt was late tonight. So just everybody knows. And so we're, we're kind of up against a hard press here. Uh, you know, Matt, I guess, I guess Matt is like the King and heavy lies the crown, I guess. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, actually I had hungry kids and soccer and, and, uh, it just made me run late. Sorry guys. It's all good. Um, we were going to talk momentarily, I think, about cormorants, water turkeys, the the scourge of lakes and ponds. You get a lot of them, Stephen, yeah. in Texas? Yeah, natural transition, huh, Troy? <laughs> right yeah, how'd you like that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I loved it. You know, Matt teed me up um, on, the, on the Facebook group and asked, you kind of called me out to talk about cormorants a little bit. And so I told him that if you're going to bring me on the podcast, we might as well cover that topic again. Um, kind of not to rehash too much history, but in the state of Texas, at one point, we were allowed to apply for a depredation permit with Texas Parks and Wildlife, and they handled them as part of their uh, quota that U.S. Fish and Wildlife gave them uh, for their hatcheries. And so they let private lake owners uh, go ahead and harvest uh, a, a small amount of birds per year. And that would typically be enough if you started early in the season, would be enough to kind of get their migratory routes away from your your water body and, and kind of provide you with a, at least a seasonal um, ability to scare those birds away. But that permitting process has went away. And what we have now is, is kind of no uh, legal lethal harvest of comrades in in Texas. And, and, and is this so a... We do, I just um, I just need to interject because I want to expand on what you just said before you give us some more good stuff. You, one is cormorants. Tell a little bit about a cormorant, what it does to a fish population. You know, because there's still some debate as if they're even going to be a, you know, just a little more scenario the background of that bird and their issues that we deal with. And then also, um, when you just said that you could not. They took away that permit. Can you explain, is that a state, or does that change in every state, or is that a federal scenario? Okay, awesome. So, cormorants in general, um, they they are a, a fish-eating bird, right? They can dive underwater. They have a second set of eyelids to allow them to basically close one set and still be able to see underwater and navigate. Uh, they're, they're really effective birds underwater. And, you know, there is some debate on exactly how many fish they consume per day and what size uh, categories they're really consuming and things like that. But what, you know, we've observed kind of on our client's pond is long-term comrades not only consume certain size classes of fish, but they also change how your fish population interacts in that environment. And so you, you will have less fish immediately near the shoreline. You'll have more fish uh, on hardcover or uh, laying basically on the bottom. They will try to escape those birds. And so a lot of times I learn about comrade issues on my client's lakes because uh, for whatever reason, 
they are trying to fish, especially late winter, and they're not catching fish, and they're they're kind of questioning what is going on. And whenever we bring the electrofisher out, we may even have kind of a low catch per unit effort with electrofishing uh, because those fish are are so low to the bottom of the lake; they're just they're glued to the bottom. Um, and a lot of times, that's just due to the predation of the cormorant. The cormorant diving in continuously; the only escape those those fish have is on the bottom. Um, so, cormorants are federally protected by the Migratory Bird Act, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, handles depredation permits for the state. Uh, so, every okay. state can apply to harvest birds on their own hatcheries or on U.S. Fish and Wildlife hatcheries. Uh, we have those as well within states. And so, so you do see that there are some, uh, at least, quantities of birds being harvested vary with the state, but it's all based on U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, and they are permitting the states. They took away the state's ability to then transfer that permit to a landowner. So our fish farms in Texas can still apply um, and get, get some depredation, but a private pond or lake owner cannot. Ah, okay. I got it. I just sent y'all a picture to add to that. I don't know, Stephen, if you have your phone handy. Matt, did you see the picture I just sent? Um, it's it's pretty telling about how much a cormorant can eat. This is a picture of a cormorant that's been cut open. It's been killed and cut open. And I, I don't know. That's what, a couple of hundred fish probably? At least, yeah. yeah. We yeah. we don't know. Cormorants aren't the only bird that are an issue. I mean, pelicans, uh, at times seagulls can be an issue. I had I went and surveyed an 1,100 acre lake um, that was just purchased from an electric company, and and while I was on the lake, we noticed gizzard shad were just floating dead along the shoreline. And this is February uh, this year, and there's gizzard shad floating on the along the shoreline. There's six inch gizzard shad, and he asked me what I thought was going on, and I said, well, I think whenever we round the corner at some point, we're going to see pelicans. Because uh, what I see pelicans do all the time is kind of the same thing that Troy posted in the picture. They just gorge themselves with fish. Uh, but then whenever they are scared or deterred some way, they have so many fish within them, they can't fly. And so they regurgitate fish on the shoreline <laughs> and then they fly away. And so what we were doing, we were on the boat and we were just pushing these uh, pelicans down the lake and they were regurgitating fish so that eventually they could fly away from us. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. The, uh, the And the, the purpose, I, the reason I sent the pictures, because what I see typically, I, really the only main predatory bird, we see seagulls occasionally uh, in Tennessee, North Alabama, never see pelicans. Um, seagulls occasionally, but cormorants mainly. And if you have a flock of 30 or 40 cormorants land on a 10 or 15 acre lake, and they're eating two, 300, you know, young of the year fish, uh, in in one day, uh, it creates a significant issue in terms of your forage base uh, for bass that you're trying to grow. So that's the that's the biggest problem that I see. And they will eat a fairly large bass too. I've seen them. I've seen them take some big fish. Yep. But just those sheer numbers of of young of the year fish uh, is pretty incredible in terms of the forage base. Yeah, exactly. And Steve, you worked on some bigger. If I remember right, you worked on some bigger organization trying to kind of release and give us some more leeway of what we can do if cormorants become a problem. Haven't you? 
I mean, like, some yeah, I mean, I some studying, some studies done. I've been pretty, in, I've been pretty invested for three or four years. Um, at one point, I ran a website to where pond owners could um, just report how many birds they see every day um, and things like that. Because, because the biggest issue we have right now is as a as a group we don't do a good enough job documenting the impact of the birds. Um, so what I mean by that is how many birds do you see? How many days a year do you see them? And then what is your expected loss as a, as a pond or lake owner? Um, and maybe that, that is most effective in a monetary loss. So reporting, not only I'm seeing birds, uh, you know, X number of days a year, but also by the way, I spent, um, $500 stocking fathead minnows this year. And so now that expected loss is much higher this year uh, because that's the only way we're going to be able to approach each individual state and change some sort of regulation within that state. And what has to happen is your state fish chiefs, um, whoever they have designated as kind of their representative to U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, to go talk about uh, comorot depredation they have to be equipped with all those numbers and every year, whenever they get to meet with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they're the ones that are going to have to go to bat for us. Uh, the private industry, we do not get representation with U.S. Fish and Wildlife on the subject, uh, not at this time. So we have to have buy-in from our state officials, state biologists, and then factual information as lake managers um, and then lake owners that this is an issue and it's causing an economic loss. And here's what that economic loss is. So getting some numbers behind that. Interesting. When you started kind of working with cormorants themselves, did you, what kind of resistance did you get and who did you get it from? Yeah, the biologists here in the state of Texas have, have been uh, pretty helpful. Um, they've yeah. given me a lot of resources. They have taken all my comments. They've taken those to U.S. Fish and Wildlife directly. They've given me every opportunity that a, a uh, commenting period has happened for public comment. They've given me those links. I've shared them on our social media accounts. I've tried to make sure that they were public and you know, get as many uh, private individuals as possible. The issue is whenever a public comment becomes available for a rule change or reg change, within your state or for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, you have to have enough voices that have unique opinions and well-thought-out opinions on the subject to make that regulation change uh, happen. Whenever we have an issue where U.S. Fish and Wildlife is thinking about making a regulation change and we have myself and you know maybe a handful of other people across the whole United States saying something, that doesn't help. And um, I try to publish on my social media when those public comments are needed, as well as what my comments are, but you can't copy and paste my comments. Um, if you do, they don't count that because that's a duplicate comment. So you have to be able to read and understand what I'm, what I'm offering and then put that in your own words and, and offer it yourself. That's right. We had a, again, this season we had a conflict resolution or wildlife to human conflict biologist on he was speaking about otters and he says one of the biggest problem about otter regulations is because we are not uh we don't know how to count how many otters we have in the state and a lot of times people will take their matters in their own hands 
and not do what you're just describing of doing the proper scenarios with the state agencies to understand how much they're affecting populations and that these this population is recovering and then recovering the high number without doing the proper paperwork and the proper understandings of nuisance permits and that sort of thing they can never ever get to the laws to change them to make them not be a nuisance am i making myself clear is that and it's kind of what you're saying and that reason i ask you about hesitation and resistance is you and you hit it exactly on the nail on the head is that having um, you aren't usually going to hit resistance on scenarios like this when you start to work with with a lot of public officials and and they are actually pretty welcoming at understanding and listening to a lot of people's scenario and what what Stephen expand I want to expand on what Stephen was saying too is that you know if people are able to take the time and to communicate this with and that's kind of what we're trying to create an organization too is to have a voice into which we can go to or have a place where somebody could come and explain um, and talk about what economical loss is happening in this scenario and 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 how many otters they're seeing or how many cormorants they're causing a problem or not causing a problem in that scenario so I just wanted to expand on that. You know, we, we get requests all the time to, to, you know, chime in on different new laws that could be coming down, whether it's from uh, NPDS permitting, that's typically what it is for my end uh, about herbicide applications. And we always try to uh, respond to the request for public uh, input. Uh, it's very important to keep uh, everybody abreast of what's happening and what you're seeing in the field and how certain regulations may or may not affect the industry. Uh, it's, it's pretty important. And speaking of otters, since you brought them up, talked to a client this morning, the trickle of water that leaves his lake in the past two months, uh, he's had a trapper that caught 11 otters out of the discharge from his lake. It's a 10 acre lake. I think he's catching them before they get there, but they're all headed towards his lake to get those fish. Devastating, by the way. Devastating. They they smell that discharge and those fish out of those discharge, huh? Yep. Wow. Yep. Interesting stuff. Stephen, you work with a bit pretty well-known organization. Maybe a few people have heard about it. Major League Major League Fishing, and a guy that maybe's caught a fish or two, Mister Klein. You know, we could spend a whole hour talking about that. But I see a lot of times you're doing a lot of education on the same principles that you do in Pond and Lake management. May it be on aquatic plants on fishery management and that sort of thing. Is there some overlap in that? And then, well, first off, tell me a little bit about all the cool stuff you're doing. And then we'll, then we'll ask some of those detailed questions. Okay. So I, like I said, in the beginning, uh, myself and Gary Klein partnered and then we, we got, uh, major league fishing on board. And so kind of us as a big group started what we call the major league fishing fisheries management division. And so it's a partnership uh, between us to really focus on conservation and stewardship efforts, mainly stewardship, right? Stewardship efforts um, on public reservoirs. And the big difference between conservation and stewardship, conservation is, of course, preserving a resource, where stewardship is being a more educated user of a resource. Right. And so I'm really, I think stewardship would be the right word. And 
kind of we we siloed it into four parts. Uh, those parts for Major League Fishing are Fish Care, which Major League Fishing was built on. They're the first organization to wow. a catchway and immediate release across uh, their their major tournament trail. Now with the acquisition of FLW um, in 2020. They expanded, and now they, they do have traditional five fish live uh, weigh-in, but that doesn't mean that, that still the core of the process is, is the catch weight and immediate release. Fish care is really important on both sides, whether it's you know angler catch and immediate release or live well handling, uh, you know decreasing that stress, putting those fish through a great weigh-in, and then getting them released in, in a responsible way back into the, the water body. So fish care is one of our main pillars. The next one's fisheries enhancement. In that, fisheries enhancement basically covers uh, the fact that all of our reservoirs are aging across the United States, and they're aging in a very predictable way uh, with sedimentation, with habitat loss, with nutrification occurring. So we can approach these things um, not universally, but fairly universally for reservoir management, where we can in- increase artificial structure. We can look at nutrient load coming through the watershed. We can improve angler access. Um, and, and then we can understand that we're all going through this process together. So our second pillar is fisheries enhancement. So fish care, fisheries enhancement. The next one is research and uh, lead this research effort. We do, we partner with state agencies. We partner with universities. Um, and then we do some independent research and so we do DNA testing uh, for Florida genetic across the United States on every fish over seven pounds caught on our Bass Pro Tour, which is the catchway and immediate release, or in what we call the MLF Big Five Pro Circuit and the Toyota Series events. So we uh, every month we average probably 80 to 120 fish over seven pounds uh, from let's let's call it six six states and 12 fisheries. And those those rotate, right? Uh, so we're sending all those samples to Auburn University and creating a really cool map of genetics across the United States. We also work with with other universities. We did a cool research project uh, with Michigan State University where we looked at lesions on the side of smallmouth bass and have actually been able to correlate those to largemouth bass virus jumping species and being in smallmouth bass. And that's some of the things you're seeing in the Potomac River. Um, is, is those spots on the smallmouth. So our, our third pillar is research, uh, fish care, fisheries enhancement, research, and then education. And education, of course, is a big one to me as a former uh, professor, but education is a big big umbrella. We do um, a lot of online articles. We have a reoccurring series uh, called the MLF Guide to Aquatic Plants. Troy, you'd love it. Uh, basically, <laughs> I break down you know, what, what this plant is. I get all the anglers to tell me what is the funny nickname you call this plant, uh, all those things. I break down how does it grow, where does it grow, what, what, how does it reproduce, how do you identify it, um, and then my anglers come back and they tell me how do I catch fish around it, where is it, where is it uh, you know, beneficial to an angler, and then finally I attach a, uh, an iNaturalist link where I'm tracking all iNaturalist observations of that specific plant across the United States. And you can log in and you can click it. You can see the map. You can help ID that plant. Um, so it's, it's a pretty cool interactive thing. So That's once again, awesome. I love fish that. Care, yeah, so once again, fish care, fisheries enhancement, research, and education are our pillars. 
we've got a big broad tent um, looking to do a lot of really cool things yeah the amount of data that you collect Stephen is one pretty awesome i mean it is so good to know that it's in a really good pair of hands as the data you collect on species plants and then record that data and then be able to look at data from future to see if the fishery is recovering or getting better or worse or or what and then that is to me something that has always been kind of overlooked between the biologists and the sport fishermen right and now you're taking both of those scenarios all these looking at all these sport fishermen is what these gigantic data collectors right and now you have you and the other side merging those together the amount of research and cool stuff that's going to come out of that that's exciting to me because we can not only use that so, in public world but also in some private so how this really started was i was sitting on the couch one day writing electrofishing report and major league fishing is just playing in the background and it's their tv show and i text gary and i said hey man um you know, you're, you're collecting all these weights on every fish. It would be great if, you know, you, you would just record some other things while you're doing it. And it would basically be a big fishery survey. And he texted back, we already do that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, here, let me send you a link. So he sent me a link to the back end of what they call their score tracker. So in the score tracker, um, on all the catchway and immediate release events, they have an official in the boat and that official weighs the fish releases the fish and then sits down and it's it's basically a a program with a lot of multiple choice questions so the first question is what species is it is it a large mouth a spot or small mouth so we have that uh the next question is what did it weigh so we have that and unfortunately it's in pounds and ounces um for whatever reason sport fish um weigh their fish in pounds and ounces and it's not as accurate it's not as scientifically relevant but we went ahead and wrote the programming to convert that to tens of pounds and, and provide that to the state. But we have a weight, right? We have the species, we have the weight. And then they collect things like, and, and I had no idea, depth that the fish was caught in, the type of lure, the location relative on the lake. Is it a creek? Is it a point? What is it? Um, the type of structure. Is there aquatic vegetation present? Are there docks present? Um, or the artificial habitats present. And then the really cool thing uh, that I saw whenever I, I kind of saw the back end of the, the score tracker that is going to take fisheries management to another level is not only do they collect all that data, the iPad gives it a timestamp and a GPS location. So now I know not only what this fish weighed, what it was, what type of habitat was there, but I know exactly where it was logged in at. And in a major league fishing event, if it's a poor, you know, it's, it's a tough grinding, uh, let's, let's say Southern United States largemouth bass event, we're going to have maybe 1,200 to 1,500 fish catches in a six-day event. What's 1,500 fish ranging from whatever we decided was the minimum scoreable weight up to however big? So let's say at Fork, uh, they fished Lake Fork earlier this season, we had about 1700 fish from two to 12 pounds caught and i logged where those fish were and so what i've done on the back end is, is i take that data put it in excel and provide it to 
the state agency for their analysis on their fishery. And the, the truth is that, you know, we may have 40 to 50 fish on a lake like Lake Fork that are over seven pounds. And you guys know how many hours of electrofishing would it take to capture 1,500 adult largemouth bass and have 50 of those over seven pounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty impossible stuff. And then, yeah, and then needing to expand on that, which makes you have GPS coordinates, well, temperature too, right? And then, so you're able to see um, migratory patterns. You're able to see, uh, you know, how these, these fish are, are moving throughout the water column, all the, the fish kind of science geeked out biology of how that, you know, what habitat, what time of year, what temperature and, and scenarios that are going to, you know, you're going to flush out in the near future. And that's going to be exciting. I think that's going to be really cool. Right. Yeah. And by the time this airs, we will have had uh, what is called red crest, which is the pinnacle, the championship event for the Bass Pro Tour. And at Red Crest, we are having a big press conference um, there at the Tulsa uh, Expo Center. And they're having a, a huge expo. In the middle of that, on Saturday, we're going to have a press conference. And I'm going to announce that Berkeley uh, and Pure Fishing have uh, partnered with us. And they're, they're basically going to help us make sure that every state agency gets this information. They're going to facilitate some more of our projects. Um, we also have Costa Del Mar, the, the sunglass manufacturer. They're coming on board through a new program called Clean Water Matters. And Costa is going to help us um, actually get our anglers activated at boat ramps, cleaning up boat ramps during all of our events, just picking up the trash, making sure that whenever we come to a fishery, we leave it better than, we, than when we arrived. And in Berkeley, as our scientific partner on the other side, We'll take the data we collect from that fishery and then provide it right back to the state. And then finally, we're going to announce that Mercury and Mossback Habitat um, are going to fund a habitat project. We're going to do actually two artificial habitat projects. Berkeley will fund one. Mercury and Mossback will, will fund the others. So we're going to go and put artificial habitat in a, a couple of fisheries this year. And we're looking at being right by Mr. Troy Goldsby. And, and talking about some Gunnersville stuff. So we might be visiting you, buddy. Come on. I'll show you where everything's at. I know the lake pretty well. <laughs> You've been there once or twice? Once yeah. or twice. <laughs> uh, so, so familiar with that lake, you can say, hey, you know that dock that has the blue roof? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that one. Out <laughs> of however many thousands of docks there are. So. <laughs> yeah, and then the relationship. So what you're taking is a really cool fishing event. And then interpreting the data and basically the state agencies now can in, take that data and then implement them, implement that data into their best management practices, their stocking ratios, their, their, what they need to do. They would pay a fortune for that data. Not only are they doing it, what you're doing is, is free. You're leaving the place better and actually adding some habitat on the properties for these states. So um, it seems like That's a right. pretty win-win for a lot of, a lot of people out there, you know? Yeah. I'll give you one, I'll give you one anecdotal uh, kind of, we, in 2019, we quietly have been doing this a while. In 2019, uh, Major League Fishing in their inaugural season went to Table Rock Lake. 
And while we were at Table Rock, I met the fisheries biologist there, Shane Bush. And Shane, um, they had they had just completed a 13-year project putting in habitat. Uh, and, and Johnny Morris had funded this big project on Table Rock Lake, and they put all these habitats in. They used a lot of cedar, a lot of rock. They, they even bought their own barge to get it done. And uh, so what I did was I told Shane, hey, by the way, uh, I'm going to give you something after this event's over that I think is really going to help you uh, decide if this, this habitat project is working. Well, little did I know that not only were they going to fish Table Rock once, but we had these big flooding events, and they weren't able to go to Grand Lake two weeks later. They went back to Table Rock. So I got 6,700 fish catches um, off of Table Rock Lake that were two weeks apart and was able to map those based on species. And so the map shows, because Table Rock has largemouth spots and smallmouth, shows each fish catch as a different species. And then we overlaid Shane's entire data set for his habitat projects. And then we heat mapped that using ArcGIS to show how close in proximity were fish to those habitats. And what we learned really quickly is that for whatever reason, that two-week window, the fish related to a single contour line around Table Rock Lake. And so if you were able to have habitat at that contour line, regardless of where it was in the lake, the fish were there, regardless of species. Now, across Table Rock Lake, uh, what we saw was fish species would be in population clusters. And another just, just quick thing that Shane learned is he looked at the map and immediately said, we're underestimating smallmouth bass populations because we do not survey smallmouth bass in this area where 90% of your anglers caught smallmouth bass. Wow, and so, that's cool. So they, they actually started adapting in 2019 using our data as part of their survey method. And now, you know, several years later, they're surveying based on our data. Wow, that's really that's cool. That's impressive. Yeah, that's cool stuff. That's really, really good. I like it. But you also, which I want to say, all these fish around the structure on a contour line. So that means like they were on a certain depth. And if you could troll that depth and hit the habitats, you would catch majority of the fish. A, a larger percentage by far. Yeah, by far. Um, hmm. I guess one more, you know, you had said, uh, does this relate to pond management? And I, I actually got a really good one this week, and it kind of ties everything together. Um, <clears throat> this week, I was contacted by a, a kind of an angler group in western Kentucky on Hanksville Lake. And the angler group is interested in Hanksville Lake. It's an 1,100-acre surface acre lake. And the, the catch ratio of large fish to small fish is very skewed. And they had decided that this was because of poor genetics in the fishery. So they contacted us to ask if we could run a genetic analysis of their fishery, which, of course, we agreed to. Um, but while we were learning about the kind of the, the, the fishery, we learned um, – we got the, the survey data from the state agency, and we learned that it probably wasn't genetic. It was probably stunting occurring. So they had uh, actually reduced the regulation so far in this fishery to where you could harvest anything you want and still have very low harvest. And so this low harvest um, in this 
in this 1,100-acre lake has led to stunted largemouth bass populations. Boy, it also has hydrilla in it, and somewhere around 20 foot of clarity, um, it is a very deep lake, so the hydrilla is running in dense rings around the shoreline, kind of choking out the marinas, those kind of things. The walleye population has crashed. The smallmouth population has crashed. Um, so on the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management side, what I got to do is do a full consult with them, um, talk to all their stakeholders, which included high school fishing groups um, and included the county judge, and put together a lake management plan um, that involves some harvest and doing some harvest-oriented tournaments. Uh, maybe, you know, the smallest fish caught will be a prize, the guy that catches the most, and then have a big fish fry afterwards. Also, we'll do that DNA analysis. So we get to tie everything together, and then at the end, come back and do some habitat management. I literally had a meeting last week that focused on that same type of change in uh, the fishery in terms of how uh, it's about a thousand acre lake in terms of how uh, bass tournaments are held. Instead of focusing on largest fish, fish focus on numbers of fish caught. Uh, it's I think it's really going to change their uh, the health of the fishery. Uh, I hope in a relatively short amount of time, but certainly in the next few years. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating what a group, large group of people working in the, for the same common goal and didn't even know it, you know, and putting those simple groups together, uh, how much it's going to improve, you know, these reservoirs and these lakes. And I think that's pretty pretty awesome you know well obviously the reason we love to have steven on is because steven is involved in a ton of cool stuff that just really fires me up it's awesome stuff i love it love what you're doing buddy it's good for the industry yeah, so it's good for everybody involved i wish i wish that everybody could be on our text strings i know troy and matt and myself we always kind of razz each other on text message and we've had some big accomplishments and i just appreciate you guys always kind of lifting me up and, and keeping me motivated. Uh, you guys don't know how much you mean to me and, and how, you know, big of mentors you are to me. So I appreciate you. Um, I'm talking to Matt exclusively. Troy's Thank head you. just got so big. I was just going to say, I, I, was gonna, I was simply going to say that's what grandfathers are for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, man. Anything that we missed that – Troy, you, you wanted well, to hit on anything? Ask Stephen anything, and then we then can we'll save my other que- we we can save my other questions for the next time. Okay, Stephen, you want to close this out? I actually, Matt, I I told you this. I had a hard deadline, and we're twenty five minutes over, and so I've got an <laughs> angry wife waiting for some dinner. Um, so I just appreciate uh, everything that PWNRA does, and. The Facebook group is unbelievable. I'm, I'm trying to spend more time there uh, offering a little bit more advice. But what you two guys do there is unbelievable. If anybody um, really wants to see anything we're doing in Major League Fishing, go to the Major League Fishing website. There's a fisheries management division page under the More tab. Uh, so click in there and you'll see every every week or so we, we publish a new article. Um, of course, you can follow on social media. Uh, my social media account, um, every once in a while on, on the Facebook group, somebody will post something of mine. Um, yep. I try to give great advice. So if you like it, uh, that's great. If not, 
Uh, it came from Troy. I learned it from Troy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, and, and I would say his his uh, people skills probably did not come from me. It sounds like he's uh, much more of a diplomat than I am. But uh, you know, <laughs> I'm getting old and kind of I'm getting old and kind of set in my ways. Yep, we're going to close this out. And before we do, Stephen, you have now you have used SmartFish app in your experience. If you get joined now to PWNRA, fill out the 10 little questions, you get a year subscription to SmartFish app. Tell me why you use that app and when and how and do you like it? So as a as a late manager, there's another side to the SmartFish app that doesn't get enough publicity. And what that is, is, is I'm signed up as a lake manager. So you as a pond owner, if you sign up PWNRA and get that, that free year uh, of SmartFish, or if you sign up for SmartFish app, if you're a paid member of that app, you can select your lake manager and it will send your data to me as well. And so whenever you need me to consult on your fishery, I have the data at hand and I have it for every time, every fish that you've logged. And that's only going to help me help you uh, more efficiently. So I don't just rely on electrofishing. If I'm using the SmartFish app and my client's using SmartFish app, I have electrofishing and their angling data to make decisions with. Yeah, excellent. Thanks a lot, bud. This podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by Private Water Natural Resource Association nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners on water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, jump to pwnra.org and click. And by all means, make sure that this continues in the future. Podcast, education, video, become a member if nothing else there's tons of platforms youtube facebook just hit like send a comment we appreciate everything you can do here pwnra